Welcome to Beyond Politics, broadcast on WKXL and available wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Matt Robeson, and I am thrilled to be joined once again for one of my favorite series of episodes that we do here on Beyond Politics by Neil Levesque, the executive director of the New Hampshire Institute of Politics at St. Anselm's and the overseer, purveyor. What's your title when it comes to the polling, Neil? You're the um, you're the head honcho. Uh, well, that one I like that. That I could put that in there. But I'm the executive director of the institute, so um, the poll falls under it. You run. I'm responsible. Most- if things go bad. You're you're responsible. You're culpable to put this in a Donald <laughs> Trump sense. You're culpable. You're culpable for one of the best run and well regarded polls in America, certainly in New Hampshire. I love covering this poll on this show with you because, first of all, it is a great insight into races happening in New Hampshire, one of the most closely watched hotbed of races as we head down the stretch into the midterms. Also, because New Hampshire really is a great barometer for what's going on around the country. Plus, you and I go back a long way. We're both former congressional staffers. We've reformed. We've gone straight. There's a 12-step program. We've cleaned up our act. And now we get to do these conversations together. So, Neil, welcome back to Beyond Politics. Well, thanks for having me. I'm excited to be back. Uh, I like this because we dig deeper. And a lot of the times these matchup things, we do a lot of polling with a lot of crosstabs and a lot of detailed data. That's very, very important as, as we look towards November the 8th. And, um, you know, a lot of television, things like that, the interviews that we do, it's sort of a matchup and then they just kind of walk away and they don't dig any deeper. And I like this podcast because we can actually talk and sort of discover a little bit more that's in the data. So I'm excited to be on. Yeah, that's exactly how I feel about it. And I find it both empty and actually kind of bad, dangerous when media just does the horse race stuff as if that's really all that matters. It's like, look, if you want to bet on races, go to a track, you know, like there's there's better sports action to have. But when you're talking about really consequential issues for people's lives, who is going to assume power and be able to make policy? I like to understand what's actually going on under the surface. So let's get into it. Let's talk about that overall political environment. So you ran your most recent poll on September 28th and 29th. You have excellent methodology. People can check that out if they're interested in the kinds of ins and outs of how this poll was put together, the methodology, if they want to get into those weeds. The snapshot of it is that you guys have a very carefully considered, thought out method that's been highly rated by the folks who look at these things and all the usual caveats apply. This is a poll. It's a snapshot in time. It's not the be all and end all of everything that's going to happen. It's not necessarily predictive, but it does give us a very good indication within those statistical bounds about where things stand and what kinds of trends we can pick up about how people are feeling about the election. That understood, let's talk about the political environment. You find that it remains poor in general for Democrats, but it's kind of continued the pattern that we talked about in our last discussion of things generally getting better, especially on the generic ballot for Democrats and kind of remaining fairly flat in terms of the overall sense of, are we on the right track or the wrong track? Is that about right? Absolutely. So uh, things are improving slightly for Democrats. And you mentioned that generic ballot. Now, this is why this is important. Nationwide, if you look at the generic ballot and you just say, would you vote for a Republican or a Democrat? That's very indicative of how people are going to vote in the end. It takes a lot of the personality out of it. 
And what we saw last winter was that Republicans, for the first time really in our polling, had a six-point lead here in New Hampshire over Democrats. That then deteriorated to a three-point lead, then a two-point lead, and now Democrats have a two-point lead uh, over Republicans. That's a transformational moment there from our last poll, uh, and I think it's fairly important as we look uh, towards these November election. Now, and we always say this when we do this, but you think this little state of New Hampshire, why does this matter if you're listening from Colorado or Ohio or California? But New Hampshire really is uh, a finger in the wind state, if you will. And what happens with New Hampshire voters who are very, very civically engaged, by the way, highest voter turnouts in the nation. Uh, we have a very uh, active citizenry. This what happens in New Hampshire really can reverberate across the nation. So I think it's it's important to look at these and think nationally, even though the sample is from New Hampshire. Mm. And we have sort of a cornucopia of different candidates that are running too. So it's not just one straightforward group. We have sort of a, a popular governor running and uh, sort of uh, three members of the Republican primary winners, all of whom we're not endorsed by former President Trump, but th have themes of their campaigns that are similar to former President Trump. So there's that mix in there as well. And as far as um, the overall environment, so what we're seeing is we've seen this for the last year. You ask voters, are, is the country on the wrong track? That's gone up one point to 69%. That's very high. Now, what does this really mean? Well, there are progressive voters who, if you're asked, is the country on the wrong track? They say yes. Maybe because they feel that they're not doing enough things in Washington that are progressive. And then you ask very conservative voters. They believe it's on the wrong track for a completely different subjective reason. But it does mean that people are, are not pleased. And it can mean on the progressive side that Let's say that there's a Democratic incumbent and a Democrat is not happy with the track of the country. They may be less inclined to vote. And so that number right there is important. And what we see, too, is this really strange situation with our three incumbents. There are four members of the congressional delegation from New Hampshire, but three who are uh, on the ballot this year. We see where their popularities um, their favorabilities are beneath 50%. And a lot of times they're upside down, meaning their, their negatives are higher than their positive favorabilities. Yet, in each one of our polling slots, they're beating the Republican challenger. Well, that's actually one of the things I wanted to get into. Notwithstanding the disclaimer you gave at the top about not just wanting to focus on the horse race, but of course, as we approach the midterm elections, what people do care about most is who's going to win in those elections. And you point out in your polling report that what's happened is that the uncertainty, this is like a quantum physics thing. It's like there's this cloud of uncertainty and it's collapsed. Now we have certainty because these races have taken shape. In New Hampshire, the primaries happen pretty late. So in your previous polls, we've been dealing with a known Democrat in the, in the federal races and a known Republican in the gubernatorial race, but an unknown challenger. Now we know who all the challengers are. And that's kind of changed the complexion of, of how the horse race is looking. So what are you finding in those races? 
So we're finding that in each of the three uh, races, the Republicans are on down the federal in, level. On the federal level, the Republicans are are down by eight to up to sixteen points, and uh, a lot of that is is that the the challengers have been defined pretty early, and voters either don't know who they are or don't like who they are. So it's been a tough environment for Republican challengers. One factor is that there's so many television ads right now on Maine, Vermont, and Massachusetts television stations. Forget about New Hampshire. New Hampshire is completely swamped. Um, And so it's hard to get. So we have this late primary. So you win the primary. Now you're out of money. You got to raise some money. And now you got to put it on the air. And by the time you're putting it on the air, uh, you know, used car dealers can't even sell cars because there's no there's no ad space. And so things get very confusing and it's hard to get a message out there. Mm-hmm. So what we're seeing is that in New Hampshire, um, Hassan is is beating her opponent. Um, Don Bolduck, um, Pappas is beating his opponent. And Custer is also beating his opponent by the largest margin. So. So three Democratic members of Congress, one senator, two House members, both, uh, all three of them winning fairly substantially. Let let me ask you about that then. You're finding in your poll, as you alluded to a moment ago, that voters have an overall net negative image of these Republican challengers. Why is that when they're relative unknowns? Is it because views of the Republican Party are poor right now, or is it because of some of the money that Democrats have been able to spend on communication and that that may have had an impact. And I, I want to ask that because you and I have talked a great deal on this show about whether spending on that kind of paid communication is all that effective in making a difference. So I'm wondering if if your current set of results is affecting your own thinking about that. Well, I, th- I think that that's definitely been a factor. So in our primaries, Republican primaries, Democratic leaning groups spent money identifying candidates primarily with former President Trump, and in doing so, uh, promoted those candidates essentially in a primary, which might have also uh, made a net uh, impact during with the General Electric crowd of a net negative. And certainly, if you look at this data, uh, you'll say that that's where we are in this race. So candidates have won primaries, and yet they're not bouncing to the top, even though the incumbents uh, have favorabilities upside down and are not positive. It's, it's almost like the entire electorate, it's, it's, it's almost like this, these voters are going to go, well, I don't like anybody, but I guess this is the best that we're going to have. And in this case, right now, the edge goes to Democratic incumbents in that. Do you expect that some of the patterns we've seen in other states where relatively controversial pro-Trump candidates have emerged from primaries. I'm thinking here of the Pennsylvania races and, you know, Doug Mastriano and, and Mehmet Oz. And these, these contenders have emerged relatively late and Democrats have had the upper hand in communication. But what we've seen in the last few weeks is that as Republicans have had the opportunity to catch up in campaign communication, spend more money on the airways. And as we get closer and voters get more engaged, we've seen some narrowing in the polling in those races. I know you're trying to be 
science-based here and you're, you don't want to speculate too much, but would you expect to see some narrowing in these races in the remaining weeks before the midterms? I would expect that that will happen, especially amongst Republicans who right now say that they're not favorable to the Republican candidate. And sometimes that can be that you were supportive of one candidate to whom they beat in a primary, and mm. you're sort of sore about it. And you haven't come home yet. And so in the end, you'll end up going to the polls and you know, biting your tongue, but then going and voting for the Republican nominee, particularly people who are very conservative. Um, and so you're probably going to have that impact. Um, but as far as you, you mentioned, President Trump, former President Trump, you know, 41% positive rating here in New Hampshire, 56% negative. And so you may be able to win a primary sort of echoing the Trump themes, as these three candidates did, but then be cast out into a general election and be almost un unpalatable to um other than 41%, which some of these candidates, actually, that's kind of their floor right now. That's kind of, you know, if you if you run and you're an R, the R's, the Republicans are going to turn out and you're probably going to get 40, 41%. And so that could be where they're at right now. Um, we've seen some candidates try to get out of that mold since the primary. I think most notable is um, Don Bolduc, who is a retired Army general who, along with 100 other army, I don't know if it was army, other generals across the country, signed a letter that claimed that former President Trump had won the 2020 election. Pretty, you know, that's a, that's a line in the sand. And now he is claiming that uh, he's gone around the state and listened to Granite Staters. And because he's listened to them, they, uh, he believes that Biden did win the election. So it's a definite reversal post-primary, surprise, surprise, um, and something very different. But by the way, I, I, let me dig a little bit into that question. Please. We asked a question on this stolen election thing. And originally we had said, you know, do you believe there was election meddling in the 2020 election stuff? And then I said, let's take the word, do you stolen? Do you believe that the 2020 election was stolen? That's a key word because that's a word that uh, former President Trump uses and sort of it's it's almost like um, tribal. Mm. You hear it a lot. The election was stolen, stolen, stolen. And so we wanted to say how many voters in New Hampshire believe that the 2020 election was stolen? And 22% say yes that they believe that the election was stolen, which is a very dramatic number, I think, considering the fact there's no evidence to that. Uh, and we, Biden's the president. Um, and, and I think it was almost shocking. But then you, we didn't dig any deeper to say, you know, is that because the tribe that you're a part of says that and therefore you're echoing the same tribe? Or do you really believe mm. that it was stolen? So I think next time we dig deeper into that. But it is interesting because when you have candidates in primaries who claim that they believe that the election was stolen, and then they get cast out into the general election where three quarters of voters don't believe that. And that is pretty much, a, I think it's a pretty substantial issue to sort of throw to voters. You know, do you believe that or not?
you know, it, uh, it does. It feels like a shibboleth, a, a kind of a code language that you would that you would express to show your affiliation with your political tribe and particularly with one sub tribe of your political tribe. It's a way of saying not just, hey, I'm a Republican. It's, hey, I'm with Trump. I'm I'm with the, the MAGA section of the Republican Party. And that is that is interesting. And it does kind of connect to something in my mind, at least, that you mentioned a moment ago, which is you're finding that Donald Trump's favorability is net negative by 15 points, 41% positive, 56% negative. At the same time, you're finding that Joe Biden's net favorability is 10 points net negative, 44 to 54. And there's a gap there. Many analysts around the country have pointed out that even though Joe Biden is unpopular, that he's net negative, he's underwater, Donald Trump is even more unpopular. So that brings up two questions to me about, about your poll. One is, have Democrats successfully turned this from the classic midterm referendum into more of a choice between those two avatars of their party, Biden versus Trump? And is that part of what's favoring them here? And also, other polling around the country has suggested that that gap is even wider for Trump. Trump is even more unpopular in other places. I know you can't speculate on the methodology of other polls, but why do you think that Trump is relatively less unpopular in New Hampshire in your poll? Well, I don't know necessarily why Trump's numbers would be different here in New Hampshire, uh, different electorate. However, I'll say that if you take that Biden versus Trump matchup and you put a mirror to it, uh, you're looking at what exactly is happening here in New Hampshire with the Democratic incumbent delegation, which is they're not popular people, yet they're beating their opponents. Right. And so, you know, when you look at the Biden versus Trump matchup and people, you know, particularly people, Republicans say, well, Biden is so bad, you know, he's this, that and the other thing. And it's like, well, he still beats Trump. So so we have a similar thing here. Um, I always reckon back to the fact that political parties exist to win. That's the only reason they exist. It's the only reason you get into a big tent with a whole bunch of other people that you may not like all of what they're thinking is to try to promote one sort of fundamental idea, if you will. And when those parties don't win over time, they may be really, it might be great that they're beating up the other side and they're throwing the football on the other coach's head and they're taunting the crowd and they're saying, we're right, you're wrong. But if they're not winning, they cease to exist after a while. And so I think what some of this is, is that Trump is very powerful in the party, but if his candidates don't win or candidates that echo what he's been saying, uh, that could be very problematic. I think that that thing with, with our, our candidate Bullduck is really case in point. You know, he, why would a general sign a letter saying that somebody else won an election with no evidence to that? So, you, you know, talking about a civically engaged person unless he was trying to cater to sort of this Trump group. Um, but in doing so, he's created quite a problem for himself in a general election. You know, there there's a little bit of an emerging problem here for Republicans, which is 
after a while, there's sort of a market selection going on where if Trump's candidates consistently don't win, they're going to kind of be natural selected, market selected out of the party. The market is going to determine what direction the party takes. I have kind of two follow-ups to that. The first one is, does this suggest, as I wrote in an article that appeared on Alternet last week, that Democrats were right to meddle in Republican primaries. This was very controversial. They did it in 13 races around the country. Two of them were in New Hampshire, the Senate race and one of the House races. And Democrats tried to put their thumb on the scale for the most magified, Trump-loving, big lie-touting, QAnon-curious candidates out there. And they were successful in getting Republicans nudging them towards selecting those candidates. It's arguable in the Senate race that their intervention is the primary reason why we have Don Bolduc representing Republicans and not Chuck Morse, a far more moderate candidate. And we now see in your polling that that selection seems to have made a big difference. And as you just suggested, there's this kind of market selection thing happening here. Does this sort of confirm Democrats were right to do that meddling? Well, I think the test will be November the 8th, because if I mean we have our data right now, but if it changes and some of these candidates with views that do not match at all the Democratic Party were to win and promote those ideas, you so then you're taking the Democratic donor money was used basically to promote a candidate who ended up winning and promoting those ideals. A couple other factors at work here. In New Hampshire, we really don't have Democratic primaries. They can, but the party is pretty unified in the fact that Republicans couldn't meddle the way the Democrats can because they're pretty unified. That says something in itself, right? Mm. Uh, You know, even Governor Sununu, a very popular, very winnable candidate, faces multiple people from the right who oppose him in a Republican primary. You don't see that type of thing in the Democratic uh, delegation. Um, Does that create less enthusiasm in a general election? So candidates, you know, they don't, they're not fired up because there's no action on their side. That could be another factor. Um, I do think that probably there will be meddling in the future. I think though that it was the perfect storm because you had former President Trump who is the absolute perfect person to just say, Bob Burns, a candidate here in New Hampshire, supports Trump, Trump supports him, and he could win a primary. And you knew on the backside of it that that same Trump endorsement was poison in a general election. So I think it was just the perfect storm. And I'm not sure if the stars will all line up like they have in this past election. You know, you mentioned enthusiasm, voter enthusiasm, how how tuned in voters are. I want to hit that question to you. Just one more, since you also mentioned the popular and apparently, according to your poll, far ahead governor of New Hampshire, Republican Chris Sununu. It is interesting that there is this divergence in what is a very purple state between the federal candidates who are all ahead. They're all Democrats. They're they're all ahead in their races. Jean Shaheen is not on the ballot, but she remains relatively popular compared to other Democrats. And yet on the same ballot, the same set of voter choices, you have Chris Sununu far ahead of 
a very likable and by I, I know Tom Sherman personally, he's likable. He's smart. He's he's sort of a, a relatively strong Democratic candidate. But Chris Sununu in your poll is sort of wiping the floor with him. Does this create a template for Republicans around the country to say, you know, look, you can be super competitive in purple and even maybe lightly blue tinged states that are otherwise going for Democrats if you put forward a candidate who can create some space between him and Donald Trump and the MAGA portion of the Republican Party? It's a great question. So I'll take the first thing with Sherman, which is 45 percent of voters have never heard of or have no mm. opinion of the Democratic nominee. So Sununu has done a fantastic job of marginalizing his opponent, uh, you know, making sure that he doesn't have the financial or ability to get her in media the way that normal opponents do. Secondly, I think the bigger thing that you're getting at and we're noticing here is that Governor Sununu is being noticed by people across the country, both media, donors, party officials, for his ability to communicate and his ability to he he's probably the only Republican nationally who can stand up to President Trump and do so in a big way and still be at 59 percent approval rating and be crushing his opponents, um, in, including in a Republican primary. So he's he's kind of been the person that's really stood out, whereas a lot of people who have stood up, uh, I'll take Liz Cheney, for example. She certainly stood up to President Trump and, and his crowd, and, and look what happened. Uh, Sununu, that's not the case. And so you've got a candidate who's a very good communicator, who wins elections in purple states, who uh, is a pretty likable person. I mean, just, you know, he got very likable during COVID. He had press conferences every afternoon. Um, and who's not a Trump loyalist, meaning he just doesn't echo what the former president said. And so I think it's refreshing, and a lot of people nationally are looking at that. One of the problems I think that a lot of the candidates here in New Hampshire, who the Republican candidates who are running for the federal offices, uh, is that a lot of what they said was just, again, those same Trump themes just re regurgitated. And Sununu's never done that. And mm. yet it's this massive lead in New Hampshire. Well, just to get way, way ahead of ourselves and beyond the confines of your poll for just a second. Look, this is what we like to do on this show. We like to dig in a little deeper. It does feel to me like the old traditional analysis of presidential primaries is that they kind of have swim lanes to them and people jockey to be ahead in their particular lane. And it looks to me as we talk about this topic and Chris Sununu, like there are maybe four swim lanes emerging for the 2024 Republican presidential primary process. One lane is the lane to be Donald Trump. There's one swimmer in that lane. His name is Donald Trump, and he has an orange wake in him, behind him. Number two <laughs> is the campaign to be the most anti-Trump possible, Liz Cheney kind of comes to mind as being the sole swimmer or swimmer way out in front in that lane. And then you get this kind of very interesting set of two additional lanes. There's sort of the, I'm Trump without the baggage, but all the stuff you like about him, Republicans. And it feels like right now, Ron DeSantis is leading in that lane and they're, and, you know, national media is kind of playing footsie with him. They're kind of DeSantis curious. They're putting their toe in the DeSantis waters. 
but you've also got Chris Sununu. And that's just for our national listeners, sort of what I want to hone in on. I mean, first of all, do you agree with my, with my breakdown here? And then second of all, I, I mean, my proposition is that national viewers and listeners should just pay some attention to Chris Sununu because it does seem like he's trying to carve out a lane that maybe a Nikki Haley would be in where it's like, look, I am a Republican. I am kind of reclaiming a Republican mantle and what it means to be Republican. I am not a Liz Cheney. I am not pushing back hard and taking down Trump. I'm accepting, but I'm creating some space as well. And there's going to be a competition to be the leading contender in that lane. And Chris Sununu is sort of making a bid for it. So I don't necessarily think that he's making a bid for it. I think that he is just a natural and is naturally in this position because he is a natural at being a order and he's very good at communicating. He's a policy wonk, a strategist, but an extremely good communicator. I think that if you were to say, if people nationally said, had a lot of those people you just mentioned on a stage and were to watch Sununu, they would be very impressed. I mean, this is a guy that does our state of the state address, which is sort of like the state of the union address from the legislature for an hour with no notes. He stands up there and speaks extemporaneously and he's gripping and interesting. And he's very much, he's not a regular person in the fact that he's much, you know, he's a very smart, smart person. And I've seen him, you know, he boils down, you know, state laws by their, by their, their, their RSA numbers. And, but, and, and his memory is amazing. But on a, on the other hand, he's sort of like the regular guy in the fact that he's your neighbor that comes over and barbecues with you and is really smart and capable and you trust him. And I think that those types of things, I think that remember, Parties are around to win and Republicans want to win again and they've got to pick a candidate. And so I think people nationally are looking towards Sununu and saying, is this guy that can win because mm. he can win here? And uh, he would have probably, you know, according to our polling, he would have done very well if he had run for the U.S. Senate without putting a dime into it. So the capabilities are there. And I think that that's why a lot more people nationally are looking at him. Mm, definitely one to watch. And I would expect predictions are always sure to go wrong. And this one's probably wrong too. But I would expect that after we get out of the midterms, you're going to see national media start to make this comparison. And there's going to be a coalescing in this swim lane of like the Glenn Yonkins and Nikki Haley's. And yes, now Chris Sununu, who can pick up the Republican banner, not be the anti-Trump, not be the pro-Trump, sort of be the traditional conservative who doesn't alienate the Trump voters, maybe reunites the Republican Party. Definitely something to watch. I want to now drive onto the parking lot and drive off with the point you were raising before about voter enthusiasm. You had some really interesting findings when it comes to how energized Democrats have become, how they're more energized and they show more intensity of partisan affiliation in their candidate selection and candidate uh, 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 affiliation than the Republicans do. Um, what did you find in that regard? And more important, perhaps, let's dive below the numbers. What do you attribute that to? Why are Democrats more energized and sticking with their Democratic candidates more than Republicans are? 
Well, I think the main factor is what we also saw with the abortion issue. So if you ask people their number one issue, we've gone from 12%. So when the, the court decision came down in June, uh, we were at 12%. Now it's at 20. And so um, that has definitely motivated uh, a lot of voters. And uh, I think Democratic voters just are more intense right now um, than they are uh, about other issues because of that abortion. Mm. And so if you take pocketbook issues, you know, let's say with taxes and spending and inflation, you get to, you know, almost 40 percent who believe that that's their number one issue. But I think that 20 percent who are concerned about abortion are very motivated and they are Democrats. You know, let's dig into that point that you're making for a second, because I, I did think that that was really, really interesting. You have a question in here about and this is a, a fairly standard uh, uh, pollster question about what issues are most important in determining a voter's vote. And what you find is that the economy slash inflation, which I think you're right to put together because they're sort of tied together in most voters' minds, that issue is 33%. That's the most important issue for a third of voters in determining how they vote. But now you find, as you were just alluding to, that abortion has risen to 20%. One out of five voters is saying abortion is their number one issue. And we have evidence from uh, other places, other states, the Kansas referendum, that that is an issue that is strongly favoring Democrats. You also find in your poll something that national pollsters have found, most notably NBC News about a month ago, that elections and threats to democracy and voting have risen very high in voters' estimation as a top motivating factor in how they vote. Elections and voting now up to 10%, selecting that particular issue as most important in determining how they vote. So you do a little bit of back of the envelope math. And what you find is that the economy and inflation, which seems to favor Republicans, that's about 33%. And abortion and elections and voting also add up to about 30%. It seems like if there's a story that I could glom on to our many conversations over the months about your polling, it's that Earlier this year, and for much of the last year, the issue environment was favoring Republicans because the issue that was most top of mind for voters was the economy and inflation. But over the last few months, as abortion and threats to elections and voting have risen in voter estimation, it's sort of canceled out the economy inflation issue. And now you have a relatively even issue environment. So my point with all of this is, it does feel to me like kind of what Republican pollster Bill McInturf said a few weeks ago, which is there's sort of two elections going on in America right now. Republicans are fighting to make the election all about their issue, economy, inflation, and to some extent, immigration. Democrats are saying, no, 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 this is about abortion, threats to democracy, Donald Trump, and maybe a little bit of an environment and climate. Is that how you see it? Is that sort of what your numbers in this poll support? I think it does support that. And I think I'd take it a step further in the fact that with our uh, with the Republicans winning in this primary a few weeks ago, they quickly identified them and put them, defined them early as being anti-abortion. And so having done that, now we've seen the shift where 
uh, let's say Senator Hassan is now about fisc- being fiscally conservative, watching the border, uh, pro-police, trying to work on inflation and other issues. So she's trying to literally steal those Republican, traditionally Republican issues away from Bulldog and doing so successfully. Because if you are, if your number one concern is the economy and pocketbook issues, and she's able to say, make a claim that she's good on those issues, and you've got all the people that are going to be marching to the polls on abortion, which is going to be strong, that's going to shore up uh, the Democratic candidate. I think abortion will be the thing that uh, a lot of people didn't forecast, uh, but you did and I did that this thing was coming down. We talked about it, I think, in January, that this court decision was coming down. And if it was, uh, if it went one way, it could really motivate voters. And I think it has. Can I admit something to you, though? Can, can I come clean just in the privacy of this conversation in front of um, <laughs> tens of thousands of radio and podcast listeners? Um, okay. We had that conversation back in January. I remember it very distinctly. You said, watch out for abortion. That could change the whole issue environment. At the time, you were finding in your polling that Democrats were way underwater and all the summer spending from last summer that Democrats had put into bucking up Maggie Hassan's numbers hadn't done a thing. And it was like, you know, kind of doom and gloom for Democrats. You said, but watch out for abortion. Can I admit something to you? You, Neil Levesque, I was kind of thinking we're a little bit crazy because there's a whole history on this issue of Every time there's a hit to abortion, Democrats kind of go, oh, yeah, that's really, really important. We definitely care about that, except they never show up and vote on the basis of abortion. Mia culpa, you were right. My internal monologue on that was wrong. I I did not sufficiently account for the effect that that would have. And your polling really backs it up. Kudos to you, political analyst Neil Levesque. Would you like to take a quick victory lap? Because I, I, I want to hit a further theory on that with you. Well, I appreciate that. We knew that there was a decision coming. And so you think about, and I'm thinking about this right now. We have a short period of time between now and November the 8th. What are the potential pivots that could change the outlook at some of these elections we just talked about? So what are the pivot points? A, big televised debates that are going to take place in New Hampshire. B, something terrible happens in Ukraine with Putin and Biden's reaction to that, that could be a major uh, pivot point, I think. And An October start, surprise, basically. Yeah. And that could change the, the outcome of this election as well. So I think about those things and what those pivots are. And if you're a candidate, you know, you're, you're thinking about all this money you're going to put up and, you know, here in New Hampshire, you turn on the television and it just gets confusing. I think that all these ads are being manufactured by almost one person. They're all the same. They all have this gloom and doom music. You know, you 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 listen to 30 seconds of Maggie Hassan's terrible and then 30 more seconds of Maggie Hassan's wonderful. And so it it gets confusing and it's hard to cut through that. So what are the pivot points? If this is the snapshot, if this is the snapshot of the election we're held today, what is going to change that trajectory. Mm. Well, look, since you've gained and I, I have ratified the amount of credibility you should have on your understanding of the importance of abortion as a driver in our politics and in this upcoming election, let me hit you with a theory that I have. And you, Neil Levesque, get to play a round of, no, Matt, you're full of it. Or yeah, Matt, that makes sense to me. All right, you ready? On this show, 
about a week and a half ago. I had a guest, a friend of mine, a political scientist named William Ewell. We were discussing the article we had just written for Newsweek about how Republicans use the issue of immigration as a distraction. It's a good article. I think it's a good article. Of course, I'm biased. All right. In the course of that discussion, I put forward my theory that the major impact of the Dobbs decision was not so much because of the intensity of Democratic feelings specifically about the abortion issue. It was more that it got them activated in general and attuned to what was going on in politics earlier than they usually otherwise would be in a midterm cycle. It's like if your alarm clock went off an hour earlier than you're used to, and all of a sudden you open your eyes and you look around, you're like, huh, it's daytime. And so suddenly what you see, and I think your polling confirms this, but you tell me what you think, is not just the salience of the abortion issue rising in the polls, but you also see the salience of other issues that generally fall onto the Democratic side of the advantage Democrats landscape, like uh, worries about democracy and um, you know, and voting concerns and, and Trump's activities, you see all of those issues rising in national polls as well. And I think it's because essentially the Dobbs decision clicked Democrats on and they've been tuned in ever since. They paid much more attention to the January 6th hearings than I think they otherwise would have. And now it's showing up in your polling where you see Democrats more enthusiastic and more closely tied to their Democratic candidates than their Republican counterparts. Neil Levesque, am I full of it or do you buy my theory? I buy your theory. Uh, and I think that if you were a Democrat and you cared about abortion, I'm sure that for 20 years, you've gotten a letter in the mail saying you need to give your last 20 bucks to this organization, because if not, they're going to take away Roe versus Wade. And of course, you roll your eyes and you think Roe versus Wade is never going to go away. It's settled law. And then they do. And then you think, oh, my, what else could they do? Mm. And what else is at threat? What, what, what is being threatened here? And I do think that that's sort of where we're at. And, and, and I think a lot of Democrats say, well, you know, it's not unreasonable that they could do away with X, Y, or Z. These are things that we've thought were settled law and that are, are sort of mainstream, but they could do it. So I do think it is a motivating factor for more than just abortion, but abortion was the trip. I think that if you, if you think, go back in like short-term history, you know, Bush proposing, you know, some sort of privatization of social security, that kind of was like, whoa, wait a second. That's not what we signed up for. Obama with Obamacare, where a lot of people said, well, we knew he was talking about this Obamacare or socialized medicine, but we didn't think he was actually going to do it. Mm. Did it. Or Bill Clinton with the Brady Bill, that kind of thing, where all of a sudden a segment of the voting population says, oh, they're actually going to do this. It's not just rhetoric. It gets real. And it gets it gets real, real fast. Well, look, I mean, not to put words into your mouth, but just to kind of run back at you what I've heard from you in this show. It sounds like we have a pretty set issue environment at this point. Democrats got activated by the Dobbs decision and now are pretty keyed in on this kind of connective tissue story of, look, you've got Donald Trump, you've got the Supreme Court, you've got threats to your values and your way of life and what you hold dear. And that's what you should be worried about in this election. You've got Republicans on the other end saying, no, what you should be worried about is the massive hits to your pocketbook, prices at the grocery store and immigration. And what we're going to see in the remaining time before the election is the threat to occupy, the, the, the fight to occupy the high ground 
which of those issues is going to be foremost in voters' mind. And the big key unknown is, are there any more pivot points, as you put it, October surprises that could still shake up these races? Neil Levesque, I wish we could keep doing this for two more hours. We're just going to have to have you back with your next poll. Thanks so much for being on Beyond Politics. Thank you, Matt. Look forward to the next time.